Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your go-to resource for practical strategies and professional development in school-based occupational therapy. I'm your host, Jason Davies, and in today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Helene Lieberman, an experienced occupational therapist and creator of the Black Back Handwriting Program. In this episode with Helene, we'll explore topics like using high-contrast writing programs to address handwriting difficulties, practical ways to integrate sensory activities and specialized writing programs into school environments, and even the challenges and triumphs of developing and implementing an innovative handwriting program within your own school-based occupational therapy program. If you're a school-based occupational therapy practitioner looking for evidence-based strategies to empower your students with diverse learning needs, then this episode is for you. Enhance your knowledge of effective writing interventions and sensory activities and gain valuable insights from Helene's extensive experience. Now, enjoy the intro music and tune in to gain valuable tips and inspiration for enhancing your OT practice in the school setting. Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Aline, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. So glad to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for asking. And I'm excited to talk to you. You know, the holidays are coming up. By the time this airs, the holidays will be in the past. But I would love for you to share, to get us started a little bit, about your background and experience as a school-based occupational therapy practitioner. Okay, so um, I graduated many, many years ago in 1988, and I've worked in a variety of settings, um, school-based being one of them. And I really enjoy the school-based setting because you do see a variety of children and you get to interact with the teachers where they really need to have their work that we're doing in OT applied. So, um, but before that I worked in outpatient, I worked in a rehabilitation um, unit for pediatrics. Um, Mm -hmm. I did home care, early intervention. So a little bit of everything. Awesome. I have a question then based on your experience with being in an outpatient clinic, was that pediatric? Yes, all pediatrics. Okay, gotcha. Was there anything in particular that you felt was helpful as you moved into the school-based OT realm from that clinic-based realm? I guess pediatrics is pediatrics. And maybe the goals change to turn the goals to a more um, school-based, educationally-related goal. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it carries over. I didn't really feel that there was much to learn except maybe how to do an IEP. That was a bit of a learning curve and dealing with some of the parents at the um, the IEP. But an outpatient, you're dealing with parents all the time and other family members. So I think that was good preparation. But I really think it was an easy transition. Yeah, I for me, I, I never worked in a clinic setting, but I did a lot of field work hours at a pediatric clinic. That's how I got into OT. And the the biggest takeaways or differences, I guess, for me that I noticed was the session length. A lot of times in a clinic, you have a full hour with a student versus in school-based OT, right? We're often at 30 minutes, sometimes even less. And then also with clinic-based is the frequency too. Sometimes kids will be in a clinic three, four times a week 
oftentimes at least twice versus in school-based OT. We're kind of lucky if we can get that one 30-minute session in. So that was the big takeaway for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a bit of a difference. But I was lucky enough to work in a school where we were in-house. There were four occupational therapists within the school. So even though they might have been on the schedule once or twice a week, we were able to see them more frequently and just go into the classroom. So it was a really nice um, setting to work in. Great. Well, we're going to dive into the content for today. And just a little teaser, you have developed an entire handwriting program. But before we get into that, I want to kind of get into the the why and even a little bit about the how that came to be. And so to kind of get started with that section of the episode, I guess, what made you decide, you know what, I need to develop a handwriting program? What was wrong? What did you see that just kind of drew you to it? Well, I would say all the kids, and I worked in a preschool for children on the spectrum. So I would say 95% of the IEPs had a writing goal, whether it was just drawing a line or a first letter of their name or something um, related to writing. And there are quite a few of um, the children on my caseload who really just didn't want to have anything to do with writing. It became very um, difficult to motivate them, even if we weren't using writing tools and trying to use some of the other, you know, components that had to do with writing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that would be good. But as soon as you brought out a writing tool that related to the goal and we had to take data on it, it became very stressful. So parents wanted the goal still on their IEP. So I'm like, okay, we got to figure out a way to make this happen. And I guess there are certain programs we're using, and I'm not saying any of them are bad because I really think there's value in every single program. It just really depends on the person you're using the program for and not every program works for everyone. And that's why occupational therapists really need to have a huge bag of um, tools in order to accommodate whoever comes onto your caseload. So that being said, I was having trouble meeting goals Mm -hmm. on the IEPs. And I was like, I need to do something else because I need to get this done. And I got to figure out how to do it. And we're creative as OTs. So started coming up with other things. Absolutely. And I, I, it's been a little while since this episode um, aired that I'm about to talk about. We had an episode with Susan Cahill, and she talked a little bit about creating your own evidence. And one of the important pieces of creating your own evidence is actually using a set program. You know, if, if we're just kind of coming up on the fly with a with a session every single week, you're not necessarily creating evidence because there isn't really a, a standardized tool that you're using or or even an unstandardized tool that you're using. And so it sounds like you decided, you know what, I need to create something so it's all kind of put together into a nice, clean little bundle. I'm sure it wasn't that at first, no, um, but that's <laughs> kind of what all. it came to be, right? Yeah, I was doing things session by session and child by child initially. But mm-hmm. once I saw that something was working, I actually did the same thing with certain children. Mm-hmm. And I kept doing what I was doing with other children. And then I started seeing a more positive outcome with some of the new things I was doing. So then I realized I was onto something. Gotcha. Okay. I want I want to ask you a follow-up question to this, but to kind of give some context for everyone, just briefly describe the, the premise of the back black writing or 
Did I get it right? Back black or black back? I black back, black that. back. So it's a black, it's a black background basically. So that'll help um, remember it. So what I noticed is that the, basically I started noticing and it was a Halloween um, project that we were doing and I used a black piece of construction paper and I was using white papers and white Q-tips in order to make a skeleton figure. And some of the children really gravitated towards that children who weren't very interested in doing a lot of arts and crafty fine motor kind of things. So I just thought that was interesting. And then I took a piece of white paper and I put it vertically on the black construction paper and the kids started coloring on the white paper. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. And then I turned the paper and it was a horizontal line. And then I started cutting strips and making different shapes. And I noticed that the kids were very interested in that. So the preschool was a preschool for children on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, There were some children who also had attention deficit disorder. I also had a few children who had low vision in addition to a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of ASD. Obviously, the children with low vision definitely took towards it. So that was the first concept of just making the black background and the white image. And then I started thinking of how are they going to learn to write small? Because I had that piece of paper from the top of that construction paper to the bottom. So I started making it smaller and smaller so they could learn more about the coordination Mm -hmm. um, after the formation of doing whatever it is they were doing. So I just started with the shapes first. And then... I started cutting a lot of paper and making letters. And then I realized, <laughs> I go, this is, and, and copying it and then eating up the toner on the, on the, right. sh- don't tell them that was me. <laughs> that was me who did that. And making copies. And so I said, you know what, this seems to be working. And then I finally, this is after a few years now we're talking, I had a graphic artist work with me to make it into a program that was then sent to a printer and laminated. So the program itself is letters, upper and lower case is one program, numbers, zero through nine, and all the pre-writing shapes that we do. And each um, program has six sizes, except for the letters, which just changed, but we'll talk about that later. So starting from a larger size, going down to the size of wide ruled paper, there is only one image on the page. So there is no numbered pages. There are no pictures identifying if you have a C. Yeah. There's no car. There's nothing else for the child to do. Mm-hmm. When they work on the white space, they see what they're doing. When they start working in the black space, there's no feedback. So it becomes very errorless yeah. where they want to go back and work in the white space mm-hmm. to see what they're doing. And there's no other distraction on the page for them to talk about everything but <laughs> what is needed to be done. Yeah, great. And so, again, high contrast. You really brought down the focus level, right? You're drawing their focus into exactly what you want them to be doing. Nothing else to distract them. Of course, we can't control everything around them in the room. But on the paper, we're focusing them into that one letter, one number, one shape that we want to focus on. Exactly. All right. And so you said that all came from a Halloween, uh, a Halloween concept idea. Now, before you developed this idea of putting white paper or white color on a black background, I want to ask, 
were there other ideas that you tried that maybe you found weren't as successful? I would say, I mean, other programs that we use are just generally writing on paper, using a lot of sensory media Mm -hmm. to do writing, using um, different types of writing tools, crayons, markers, dry erase boards, um, chalkboard, clay, wiki sticks, everything else that, you know, I could think of that would interest the child. Yeah. And I mean, those are types of things that we use every day, but I guess, why did you I'm sure you still use some of that, but oh, I, ultimately, actually, I use it all. I still exactly right. <laughs> yes, I love all of it. So, why focus on the program as opposed to some of those other tools? Or, I mean, you said you still use them, but what made you decide like those weren't enough? It was really the distraction factor. That's what it really was, and I still will use Blackback along with other programs. Again, depending on the child, and there are so many wonderful writing programs out there, but a lot of times to get somebody's attention and interest and focus, this is how I I felt I needed to start because a lot of um, children were overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. whether it was by all the images on a page or the page looked very busy and confusing or the page was part of a notebook, like a bound notebook. Mm -hmm. And the child thought that they would have to do the whole notebook, even though you would say just one page, it just became... The anxiety started to increase before we even got to do the activity. Yeah. So it became, that became a barrier as well. Um, so the, this program is um, laminated pages, but it's, um, there are three holes mm-hmm. for our hole punch. So you can put them in a binder, but I usually take it out because if you start presenting the binder, I had the same type of reaction where it became a heightened anxiety. So that's where I started. Just just keep it simple. Very simple. Yeah. What about technology? I know one of my go-tos was using an iPad. Um, I liked using a stylus with apps like Writing Wizard or Letter School. Um, what about, did you use those? And kind of, what I, I did. I did. And sometimes it's successful. Sometimes it's not. Depends on the child. I always um, lock the iPad when I do mm-hmm. apps. And I love the um, the Write Right stylus. Yeah. That- only works with the proper grip pretty much. And even though I'd lock the iPad, some kids did well with it. Some kids kept trying to press the button to change the app. And that became a focus of theirs. And they were not happy that they couldn't change what was on the iPad. Right. Um, Follow-up question to that. One of Mm -hmm. the biggest difficulties I had with the app, and I want to know if you had it too, was carryover from an app onto paper. Is that something that you noticed as a difficult thing to overcome? Not so much. I, I always go to paper. Even with the Blackback writing, I go to regular paper also right after. Um, and when I use apps, I always go to paper after because that's where most of the kids are going to end up writing. And of course, there are some kids who end up using typing and you know apps for communication, mm-hmm. but um, I always go to paper. Gotcha. Cool. And kind of on the lines of that technology side, I'm sure at some point in your career, you have had this debate in your head, just as most of us have, why not go to typing for our students who are struggling? Even if it's, you know, early on, why not go to that next uh, use technology? Because research shows that when writing is done, There is increase in literacy as well, whether it's letter recognition 
whether it is um, their reading. Also, memory is increased when mm. children are writing. So that's important. And I think the aspect of writing is really something that starts at drawing pictures mm -hmm. and then leads, of course, to the literacy and being able to express yourself. And it's not just the writing, it's um, the legibility of it. There's research that shows that students who write messy get poor grades, even if maybe they wrote the correct thing. Sometimes teachers don't want to bother with it, sadly. Mm -hmm. So they end up getting downgraded on their papers and then they become more upset and unfocused and their self-confidence decreases. So I think it's an important thing to write. Not every class is going to have the technology and not every school district is going to go to technology right away or provide it. And some families don't have the means for that as well. Yeah. You know, you sent in some um you sent in some slides that we were able to prepare for mm -hmm. for this interview today. And one thing that really struck me was this. You had you actually cited this as a research from I believe it's uh, more MOHR in 2022 that learners who struggle with handwriting also tend to struggle with keyboarding. Mm. And uh, this really struck a chord with me because I have never had nice penmanship. Mm -hmm. And so I have always tried to focus a little bit on typing. And even at the age of 35, I think I am now, my typing speed is probably still slower than a today seventh grader. Like I am terrible <laughs> at both. And so like I fit right into that study, which I just thought was kind of um, interesting. So. Yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting too, because you would think if it's the legibility and the writing, they could type. But again, when you think of the sub skills for typing, you still need to visually scan the keyboard. Mm -hmm. You still need to be able to have dexterity in your fingers. So there are things that you need for writing that you will need for typing. Yeah. And even if you're trying to be more fluent with typing, if we want to say, um, same thing with writing. Like for me, I've always struggled to far point copy effectively with um, a pencil because I don't, I, I personally feel like my tactile awareness is not greater. Maybe it's a little bit of probe, but like I have to look down at what I'm writing with a pencil. Like otherwise I'm just going to be all over the page. Mm -hmm. And that same skill is also used very much in typing, right? To, to touch type, you rely on a lot of tactile feedback, a lot of muscle memory per se of knowing where all the keys are. And so I think, like you said, there's a lot of overlaps when we really think about it between mm -hmm. handwriting and typing. So, yeah. yeah, I have to look at the keyboard when I type. I cannot, I, I think that's the only class I failed in high school was typing. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to uh, completely admit that I still log into Typing Club every now and then to practice my own typing skills. I, uh, yeah, that's I how bad my typing I should probably start is. that as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but, but still kind of like for real on typing a keyboard, because I know that it is something that people can move on to. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely have. And I want to get your take on this. For me, and I, I honestly don't remember where I read this. I want to say it was in like maybe the etch manual or something like this, but 
it was something like we shouldn't move kids over to typing until they have reached at least 15 words per minute. And and maybe all of us have our own separate kind of uh, criteria for students when to move to typing. But what did you kind of use if you were, you know, transitioning to typing? What did you kind of use to gauge whether or not that would be okay for a student? I, I, because I live in Florida, third grade is a big year. And I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, if your state third grade is a big year where they have to often write more sentences and essays. And if their writing is so difficult that they're not going to write much because it's a struggle mm-hmm. and they don't have somebody to write their thoughts because, you know, if they don't have that, that accommodation, usually by third grade. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's by third grade that like we need to make that decision here at least, but not make the decision. I understand what you're saying. It's not cut or dry, but I'm like, let's start the typing and see what, what happens. Is it going to stick better? Is it going to be more successful? Yeah. And this is the perfect transition to the next kind of topic Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about, which is common core, because um, as you know, like there is no real handwriting in common core goals. Like it says that they will print, but it doesn't say like, to what degree and the same factor i think unless i'm wrong you can tell me the same thing with typing like it says that kids will type but it doesn't really gauge like what that exactly looks like exactly there's no standard on the typing or the writing i think it says um for the writing it says from a model so they might be looking at what the teacher does and what i call is drawing a letter so mm-hmm. the letter in the end might look like the teacher's letter um, but the formation is maybe not proper, and that eventually starts slowing down the child in their writing if they're not using a efficient way to form the letter. And um, in the Common Core, there's a lot of not handwriting requirements, but writing requirements in terms of writing essays or writing creative thoughts or writing um, a, a paragraph. Or so the writing is there, but mm-hmm. the handwriting piece is not. Yeah. And, and I kind of understand why, because I think that they tried to left it more broad as a way to understand within society that we are moving to a digital age. And if they put in there that the child will handwrite a paragraph or handwrite an essay, then people will come about and say, well, what about typing? So I think that being a little more broad opens that up, but yeah, but I don't think the states put anything in. I know our state doesn't put anything in there either. The Common Core can be interpreted differently by the states. Yeah. And I know different schools, um, um, counties also do their own thing. And some counties do put in handwriting as part of their core curriculum, and, and some do not. And gotcha. actually, some teachers just do it on their own because yeah. they understand the importance of it, whether their um, district has it or not. Yeah. And and that reminds me that I believe California just, I think it was California, just signed into law that they're bringing back cursive. Like cursive was gone for how many years? And it's still, mm-hmm. like you said, I don't think cursive is mentioned in the broad common core. But as you mentioned, right, states can potentially put some into it. And I think California has made that decision. They're going to put cursive back in. So, yeah, a little yeah. food for thought. Yeah, so it depends on, you know, and there are some states, of course, who don't even have a core curriculum, but that's a whole other. Right. That's a whole other thing. But, um, and the private schools, of course, are different than public schools. Private mm-hmm. schools can do their own thing. Actually, more private schools from what I've seen and what I've heard, I don't have any research or data on this, but I have um, heard and seen that private schools have handwriting curriculums. 
versus um, or have more handwriting curriculums than a public school does. And I don't know if that's because they have the funding or the parents are demanding it, or I'm mm-hmm. not exactly sure what it is. Yeah, who knows? But yeah, yeah. While we're on the Common Core subject, how do you feel? We we talked a little bit about Common Core, how it lacks the handwriting, lacks typing. But aside from that, what have you heard from teachers, from principals, from other occupational therapy practitioners as far as how Common Core is impacting their day-to-day with students? What what I've heard is that a lot of teachers are teaching to the test. That is what I've heard. And then um, for occupational therapists, that the teachers want the therapist to do the homework or whatever the assignment is that they need to do in the therapy session so that they can keep up with the curriculum, even if it's a push-in activity, like, okay, this is what we're doing now. That makes sense. Of course, you know, we're pushing it and this is what we're doing. But even if they're pulling out, they're like, um, can you do this? They can't miss whatever it is that they're doing. And I think I I understand the need for test taking, but I think that sometimes takes over the learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely have had teachers kind of say, hey, can you work on this homework in your pullout setting or whatever? Like, and we started to have actually principals, and I know this isn't uncommon. We were being directed to not pull out kids during a certain time because mm-hmm. that was core instruction time. Mm-hmm. And that gets really hard because now your time to see kids is being shrunk even more with an over impacted, you know, caseload. And it's, it's struggle. I have I have that problem. Actually, right after this, I'm going to see a kid in the schools. It happens to be a private school, but because their day is so busy, I cannot see the child till the end of the day. Yeah. So they're pulled out for the last half hour to me. Oh, and I'm not allowed. Nobody's allowed in the classroom either. Oh, wow. Right. So I get the child like the last half hour of the day, and then the child stays a little bit extra. Mm-hmm. And then the family comes to pick the child up. But it became, it's like, well, there's just no room in our day for OT. Yeah. And yeah. if it wasn't for the parent pushing, I don't think they would allow it at all. The parent is a very good advocate for that child. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's a lot of restrictions being put on everyone. And it's not just OT, right? Like it's it's everyone, speech, teachers, it's everyone, principals, yeah. it's everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just making everyone's job a little bit more, more difficult. Right. There are only so many hours in a day. Exactly. Exactly. And then you try to put 60 kids in, you know, to a matter of a 32 hour work week. It just gets impossible. I kind of want to circle back because we did go off tangent a little bit, but Mm -hmm. those were important conversations to now bring us back because I want to ask you, how did Common Core, understanding Common Core or not understanding Common Core at the time, how did that impact the route that you took with Blackback, with the writing program? I'll be honest, I had no clue about Common Core before I started looking into it. So I was looking as to what the schools are requiring for Mm -hmm. handwriting. And that's when I started talking to some of my teacher friends. And they were the ones who were telling me that there is nothing required. And then I started looking into it and I found the similarities. So, yeah, so I was very clueless, except for my own children. I knew there was a curriculum and a common core. But Mm -hmm. other than that, as an OT, I really never delved into it. And I I should. And I feel we should be in the school system, you know, be more aware of it. So um, I admit I was totally unaware until 
I started looking at, well, what do schools do for writing? You know, how do they, you know, get the kids to write? So as you were looking into your school, like what, what were your teachers doing? What were other therapists like, what, what were they doing if they. Okay. So in uh, the school that I was working in, actually we used, I'm learning without tears, which I do love. I -hmm. love it. And I incorporated a lot. There's a lot of wonderful things um, in terms of um, sensory and movement and, and it's a wonderful curriculum. The only issue I had is that some of the children were very distracted by some of it. Again, great curriculum. It's not for everybody. So I found pairing this. But yeah, there was a curriculum. And actually, the OTs went into the classroom um, usually once a week to do a center. Mm-hmm. The, every teacher had um, the materials and incorporated some of the songs into their circle time. So it, it was ve- it was very successful. Gotcha. Okay. So they were using the students that were being referred to you then at the time, they were already getting some sort of handwriting instruction. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because a lot of times as occupational therapy practitioners, right, we get the handwriting referral and then we ask what's been done. And the answer is just like regular instruction. There's no sort of program in there. So that's that's at least nice to know. They were getting that. Yeah, it was wonderful. Awesome. Okay. So that's kind of where your school was at at the time when you thought of, of blackback writing. Now, as it started to progress, as you started to see students, you know, it was working for students. At what point did you start to kind of look into more research to kind of maybe adapt it based on research a little bit? Um, so I was looking at some of the research of like just colors and writing and just in general colors. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a lot of stuff on um media, marketing, low vision, um, you know, things that didn't have to do with writing. I did find Mm -hmm. one study that was done in Germany. I believe it was in Germany um, with children who had attention deficit disorder and they were given color choices of paper and they found that the children wrote more, but they, their theory was that it was the child's choice. Like, oh, I love pink. I'm going to write on pink yeah, in, yeah. versus white. So they were talking about giving the children color choices of paper. Now we know that there's like the overlays, the colored overlays that mm-hmm. are helpful, but there was nothing that talked about changing. Now I've worked with children who have low vision where they, and I can't remember the name of the machine for the life of me, but it's a machine that if you put the book under and you could flip the background. Oh. So I, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't know the name of it, but I had a student who I believe had that. Right. So if they're reading a book, you put the book under and then the light is on top and then there are mm-hmm. knobs and adjustments so you could flip the color. Yeah, um, students hate it. Oh, do they really? Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, I was working with a high schooler. You can imagine a high schooler having that on his desk in a general education oh, classroom, okay. yeah, right? I guess so, yeah. 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 Now um, we just have iPads. <laughs> right. So the, the low vision, you know, piece was, you know, important too. And that's where a lot mm-hmm. of the research was, but nothing that had to do with writing and changing the color. And I still gotcha. have it. So if somebody's yeah, interested I've... in doing research, please. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because... um That is something that we see. We see the overlays a lot in occupational therapy. And I want to say there is some research around it for reading, but I don't know about writing. Exactly, for reading. And then in the writing space, I think every occupational therapy practitioner just about is familiar with the high write paper that has that Mm -hmm. yellow highlighted area. Mm -hmm. I created paper that's called gray space paper, another one with color in it, just using gray. So, I mean, that is not uncommon 
within the OT world, especially to use uh, colors on paper as a visual cue. So, but there isn't a lot of research from what you're able to find. It sounds like. I could not find any research in terms of writing. Interesting. All right. If anyone out there wants to uh, take my gray space paper and do some research, I would be happy to print out as much as you want. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. uh, Helene would be happy too if you use a uh, black back. Yeah, definitely. Something. Now that there are more um, entry-level doctoral programs out there, most students do need some sort of capstone project. So if any of them are listening or if somebody knows somebody who needs a capstone project, I guess you can get in touch with either of us. And um, yeah. I'm happy to have them do it. I'm doing some research now. And so far, not much. So last school year, we didn't have a very large sample size. We had Mm -hmm. one classroom and we did um, four kids for six weeks of the school year and then another four children for the second six weeks. So there really wasn't a lot of evidence or significance, I guess is the word. Um, My research (laughs) limited. I'm learning. And this year I'm doing a whole classroom. So there are nine children in the class and it's a pre-K four class. So those children will all be going to kindergarten next year. And there is another classroom in the same school. So that class is not getting the black back program. Gotcha. So we can make a little bit more of a comparison and hopefully we'll see something. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your first, well, this will be like your second time doing research officially. Um, It's part of, it's under the same umbrella. It's under the same Mm -hmm. IRB. Okay. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I took a stab at research. You know, I think, I think it's important to do as a clinician. Don't do it a lot. Um, I think we need guidance to do it, or at least I needed guidance to do it because I'm not an academic. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, I think it'd be great for clinicians to pair with academics to, you know, we're Absolutely. seeing things in the clinic and, you know, we want to make sure that it's working. So we need to have some research on it. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. In fact, I think we had an entire episode way back in like, I want to say it's episode 11 or 13, where we talked with a school-based occupational therapy practitioner about like incorporating research into a school. And I know it's not easy. So I just want to give you kudos because you've got to go through the district board. You've got to get an IRB. It is not simple. I, I'm doing it in a private school because oh. of the difficulties with the public school. There yeah. you go. Yeah, it That's was very, great. very difficult to do with the public school system. Yeah. But you got to start somewhere. Yep. Yeah. And some people start with their own kids. Like, I mean, just it's <laughs> <laughs> right. You start somewhere. But actually taking that step back, yeah, we, we dove into the research that you're kind of working on now. But you must have done some of your own, like, even if it wasn't written down, some of your own, like, little internal studies, per se, or individual case studies. So share a little bit about that. Like, what, what did you do before the official IRB stuff? So I think I mentioned this before. I don't know if I did, where I had some of the kids on my caseload use the black back program Mm -hmm. and some of the other kids just do whatever I was doing before, nothing different. And I noticed that the um, data was better for the children using black back. So it was very unofficial and it was more like my little data sheets checking. Yeah, that's that's about it. (laughs) That's about simple as you can get. I recently, um, gosh, I think it was a, a, an article posted a few weeks ago. I talked about some of the things that we should be doing as OT practitioners that we honestly don't have time for. And one of them is kind of program management and taking data on our own program. 
as school-based occupational therapy practitioners, we're very good at taking data on an individual student, presenting that data on that individual student at said child's IEP. And then we do it again for students two through 55. But we are never able to take that step back to see as a whole, are 50% of our 55 kids actually making progress to, toward their goals? Are 75% making progress toward their goals? 25%? And, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to do that. Probably not just because it's so difficult. But that's great that you were at least able to kind of look at some of the kids who were getting the program and some of the kids who weren't. And just kind of anecdotally, you know, keeping in your mind in, in a little checklist that it was working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's you have to be very mindful of it because... As you know, sometimes days get really busy. And <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. So how long did you actually use the program kind of or the the um, the prototype, I guess you want to call it, where you right. were just printing out things before you decided, you know what, this is something that is really working and I need to make this known to other people? A great question. So I, I think like for a couple of years, I was doing it on my own. And I have to say, I was a little shy thinking everyone's going to think it's weird or just doubting myself Mm -hmm. as to this and the theory I had. But now just looking back on it, I see when I go to conferences and people are looking at it, they're like, wow, this is so simple, but so effective. So in the beginning, like I said, I was a little shy about it. So I did it a few years on my own. And like I said, I got sick of copying everything. So <laughs> I found a graphic artist to do it and I used it on my own. And then finally, I got the guts to um, speak with a printer. Okay. To actually print it in bulk and, you know, okay, I'm going to do this. And if I it fails and everyone says it's a dumb idea, then okay. But at least I tried. Mm-hmm. So it finally got printed in early 2020, and I was probably doing this for at least eight years before that, I would think, using what I did on my own. Yeah. And um, I finally got it printed, and it came to my house in huge pallets. And it was about, yeah, it was a lot. And it was in March of 2020, and I was supposed to show, yep, exactly, showcase it at the AOTA in Boston. I had a booth. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So we had a lot of stuff in our garage for a long, long time. And um, eventually, you know, I brought it out. But I, I would say I was shy at the beginning to do it. You know, it's it's anything new, you have to put, of course, a lot of work into it. And I was still working full time. So I would try to do something on my free time. And then my free time got eaten up by something else. Mm-hmm. So, but now I'm doing it a little bit more and it has been well-received. So I would say since about 2011, 2012, maybe. Wow. I've been working on this. A long now. time in the works. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic though. That means, I mean, and, and you think about, right, where you are right now, like you're starting out with really selling these. I know you've, you've already, you know, you you sold some, it's not like you haven't sold one yet. You know, you've sold some, they're going out, but even if you never did that, there's so many kids that you were able to work with using this program that, I mean, you helped a lot of kids with this program without ever selling a single copy. Right. Like that's awesome. And now moving forward to think about it, like all those years of development of you working with it, figuring out what worked, what didn't work. And now others are going to be able to use that to help countless individuals 
with the program. So. That's pretty cool to think about, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we become therapists and um, we have a desire um, to be, you know, to make an impact on somebody and hopefully yeah. many people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. I want to kind of take that step back within the development phase because this was a question I had and I probably could have asked it a few questions ago, but I often get asked, hey, Jason, I'm typing out some worksheets for handwriting. What typing style or what typing font should I use? And so I'm sure you have had some uh, things to look into and kind of trialed out a few things. And what did what did you trial out, I guess, or what did you learn and what did you end up using? Um, again, to be honest, I can't remember the font, but if I would go back and do it, I think I'd go to Comic Sans. Why is that? I think it's very easy to read. I think the letters are like we, the way we write them. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just think it's easy on the eye also. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. I I personally, on my website, I use pop-ins and the sole reason that I use pop-ins, well, not the sole reason, but um, honestly, there are many that I actually like better, but I use pop-ins because of the lowercase a. It actually makes the lowercase a the way that we write it, as opposed right, the same to... Thing with the comic sans, yep. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, the, that one. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. I don't even know how to write it if you ask me to. Um, but yeah, it, it's amazing how much emphasis we put on fonts, whether it's on a website or even the way that mm-hmm. we personally write things. I mean, I've had students, and I'm sure you have had too, where you ask them to write letter A, and they write that other style A, and like you don't even almost recognize it as an A. You're like, wait, that's that's not an A, that's like a D. And then you actually look at it, it's like, oh, you're writing the A that you probably see typed out on the iPad every right. single day or write or reading. Right. And I always accept it. I mean, it's it's hey, if it's an A, it's an A. Oh, but yeah. I think it's harder to write than the other way. I agree. And it throws you off when the first time you yeah. see it, like I, you know, you don't see it every day. You don't see kids writing that style. No, not usually. And yeah. so, but, see, see, that's the top, you know, when we're talking about drawing the letter, mm-hmm. that's what happens often when children are not taught. They're looking at it. They, they understand it's an A. So mm-hmm. they're just copying what they see, which is smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do in life. We copy. Yeah. That's how we learn. Exactly. Like, it's like, oh, it's an yeah. A. That's how I make my, my A. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, uh, before I'm trying to make sure that we covered everything about like the, the how and the why you got here. We obviously covered the why a lot about Common Core and we discovered or we talked about how you learned a lot about how there wasn't a, necessarily a program ingrained. And, and so you started to develop this program to work alongside potentially learning without tears or other programs. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything else that you want to share about kind of the how you developed the program? Um, I, I did send things to my OT friends uh-huh. to try out. Yeah. Um, freebies. Everyone loves freebies. Yeah. So <laughs> I trials. think that was another little like pilot testing sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, try and let me know what you think of it. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. And so I guess piloting it and. What, what was some others. of the feedback that you felt? I mean, everyone, it's hard to give negative feedback to a friend. So was it all positive? Definitely too much ink, okay? (laughs) Too much ink to print out. That was for sure. Yeah. And actually, over the years, part of the feedback was um, six sizes is too much. Ah, okay. So our second printing of the letters, which should be in my garage on a pallet, hopefully by the end of the week, has only four 
sizes as opposed to six. And the other feedback that the eight and a half by 11 size is too large for portability, especially for school therapists, because it was heavy. No joke. It was 10 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) it was a lot. And I always kept it in a uppercase binder and a lowercase binder. And I always would just pull what I needed. Mm -hmm. But other people who go to schools further away and they need to have, you know, everything, they can just pick and choose for the day. So I don't know what the weight is going to be. I could let you know when I get it, but this (laughs) is going to be five by seven. Okay. The letter sizes aren't changing. Just there's less background Mm -hmm. of the black. and. I have done prototypes of it and people say that that should be better. A little bit easier to handle and use. Yes. Easier to um, manage in terms of size and carrying around and storage for sure. Yeah. Awesome. That's going to be great. I'm sure. Like I I said earlier, I'm sure it's going to help a lot of therapists and a lot of kids out and and hopefully teachers and parents too, right? Like this isn't necessarily unique to to therapists. No, actually teachers really love it in their centers because they're laminated and they're like, okay, you can do this. It doesn't require any explanation. Um, And the teachers do a lot of sensory stuff on there too, and it can be cleaned. So they're like, oh, this is so easy. And teachers have a hard job. So giving them something easy. It's right. Good. Right. Yeah. Giving instead of asking is always is always something a key into a teacher, right? The more you can give them, especially if it's a physical product that they can use. Right. Yeah. You mentioned sensory. We we kind of touched on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And OTs are creative, but what have been some of your favorite sensory activities to use alongside the cards? I would say wiki sticks is really good. Paint. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've emptied a nail polish bottle. Yeah. It the nail polish, well. I don't know if you polish your nails often enough, but the way it just seems that the nail polish <laughs> top seems to oh, gave me a great grasp. I'm like, That's oh, awesome. and it is kind of interesting. Empty it out and um, clean it out. You can put paint in the nail polish bottle. Wow. Um, what is it? Wiki sticks. I've done food on it also. Pretzels, like mm-hmm. stick pretzels and circle pretzels and licorice and sticky things and skittles yeah, play-doh and, slime all yep. that fun stuff i'm sure yeah i've actually put um it under let's say shaving cream and the kids have to oh get so they have to find the letter under there like a sandbox or shaving cream something like yeah that. just yeah. cover it in something and they have to use their hands to clean it off to find what's under there all right. For those of us who don't uh, do our nails on a weekly basis or <laughs> monthly basis or yearly basis, um, I, 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 as hearing you say that, is it easy to get off? Like, because it dries, right? So well, it's it... paint. I, I fill it with paint. I take out the nail polish. Oh, I get what you're saying. You're not using yeah. nail polish. I'm you're using the paint. nail polish. Yeah. Actually, I've tried nail polish. If you get it right away, it comes off. It gets a little tougher. Um, but Magic Eraser pretty much can take off anything eventually. True. And the nail polish just chip off also. So, uh, However, I imagine paint is a lot cheaper than nail polish. It's imagine. definitely cheaper <laughs> and easier. And if the kids get it on their skin, it's much more washable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, and if you have girls on your case, so they might start painting their nails instead of doing the activity. That's the whole, we're trying to not distract them. But right, anyways, exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's great to hear that uh, that you're moving forward with changing it up a little bit based upon feedback and making it available for everyone. And uh, you just provided some sensory strategies and, and other activities that, that people can try out um, if they do decide to use something like this. All right. So that's kind of the program. I want to ask you kind of about supporting other occupational therapy practitioners who maybe have an idea out there. Like this took you, you already talked about like a decade or so to really kind of have the idea, have multiple ideas, put those ideas into your own practice in various ways, and then eventually get to the point where you printed something out and and now you're selling it. OTs have so many ideas. Like we are constantly adapting a pencil or changing up a stylus or Mm -hmm. taking keys and moving them around on a keyboard, whatever it might be. So for OTs out there who have maybe tried a few things, do you have any suggestions for them as to, you know, maybe one day it could be a program? Where where should they start? Well, I think if you have a good idea, and or if you let's say if you have a problem and you solved it with a good idea, other people probably had similar problems and are looking for something to solve that problem. So I would think that it could be something that's marketable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think talking to other colleagues and asking if they'd had the same problem and ask them to try the new method that you've figured out. And does this work for you? Sometimes it's a one-off thing that just works for one yeah. child. And um, I think not being, I guess, scared of the ideas that you have and being nervous that it's going to be looked at as, oh, that's a strange idea. Mm-hmm. But if it works, it works. It's not a strange idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of times as as an occupational therapy practitioner, we think, oh, this was just for one kid. Mm-hmm. And like we do it just for one kid. But if it works for one kid, right. um, it's very likely that it will work mm-hmm. for many kids and exactly. beyond the kids that you can potentially provide service to or even provide whatever that is to the teacher, the parent, there are likely others out there who it may benefit. And so that's where, you know, reaching out to people, talking to the teachers, hey, is this helpful to you? I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about if they wanted to start getting some data on their product or their idea? Where would you suggest that they started? Not, Not necessarily, obviously, I want to say not necessarily using an IRB, you know, style data, but how do you recommend that they just start getting some anecdotal data? I would just say, use your caseload, use your caseload and keep careful records of what you've done during a therapy session. Try to take pictures is is something that I did without, of course, the child's face in it, you know, try to take pictures and keep a file and see if you notice the difference, whether it's in hand position Mm -hmm. or quality or whatever it is that you are, you know, working on and keeping it in a secure place and then really looking at it from quarter to quarter and seeing if it makes a difference then trying maybe on another group of kids. And again, keeping your own anecdotal data, you know, writing it down and then see if you find a pattern in something. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Helene. This has been wonderful. We talked about like kind of the the problem with handwriting in schools. And then we kind of talked about kind of the why and, and what you developed and how you developed it all. And, and then, of course, just kind of going over a little bit about helping anyone out there who may want to develop a program mm-hmm. at all. Before I let you go, I obviously want to ask you about where people can learn more about yourself and the Black Back Writing Program. 
Okay. So actually I'm meeting with someone tonight um, to construct my website. It's been a, my next dream. <laughs> I'm getting a website. It'll be called blackbackwriting.com. I already have the name, but I don't have the website. So they can look for that. I am on um, Instagram and TikTok and I have a Facebook page and I will send those to you so they can look it up. I put up handwriting ideas. Um, If somebody is using the program, I'd love feedback, especially if it's positive. Um, You know, that's always good, but you know, negative too, because you learn from everything, you know, it's not just about, you know, positive, you got to take, got to take it all in. Um, So that's what I'd say the TikTok, Facebook and Instagram and soon website. And if somebody's interested in getting a free download of Blackback, I did send you a link so somebody can try it out and get a free download sample. And remember to have toner in your machine, in your printer, <laughs> when, before you do that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, it, it does take up some toner. So I, yes. I, I'll follow up to this really quickly. Maybe we should have talked about this earlier. But what about using the black bag program as a PDF on an iPad? Is it similar or is it oh. very different? So interestingly enough, um, it hasn't worked that I've seen. Okay. But um, I was just talking to somebody who wants to do an app with Blackback. And so that's something I'm thinking Looking about. Into. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You're I... not going to get, um, like on some of the other apps, when you. Mm-hmm right on it. You're not going to get the same kind of results, but it's still good practice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So very cool. Well, Helene, thank you so much for sharing all of your information with us, your wisdom. Really appreciate it. And again, I know that the Blackback Handwriting Program is going to help a lot of people out there. So uh, we'll put all the links to all the different things that we talked about today, everything from the Write Right Stylist to the different apps that we talked about to, of course, your website, your Instagram, your Twitter, and all that over on the show notes at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 141. So that'll be an easy place to go. Find all of it, including that free sample of the black bag handwriting program that you can get for yourself. So thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. And we'll definitely thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Bye. One last time, a big thank you to Helene Lieberman for coming on and sharing her experiences as a school-based occupational therapy practitioner and as the creator of the black bag handwriting program. If you'd like to learn more about Helene and this program that she has created, be sure to check out the show notes at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 141. And also, if you really enjoy and just love occupational therapy and school-based occupational therapy, be sure to check out our community for school-based occupational therapy practitioners at otschoolhouse.com slash collab, where we have over 100 school-based occupational therapy practitioners learning and growing together to be the best school-based OT practitioners they can be. We would love to have you as our newest member and grow together. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.